across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, that went quite well, didn't it? For the first time in a long time, there was a government media briefing yesterday that actually sounded quite hopeful. Chris Whissey even made a whimsical remark about the yobbo that had abused him in the previous 24 hours. At this rate, he's going to come out looking a lot more human than his assailant. But first things first, here's what he had to say. Cases, deaths and hospital admissions from COVID-19 are all tumbling, so much so that Whitty says we are now well past the peak, which is generally thought to be January the 12th, less than two weeks into the national lockdown. So now there's talk of schools reopening in March, the sooner the better as far as most parents are concerned. And then what? We'll ask the Independence Chief Political Commentator what he makes of it all. John Rental uh, will be here. And, of course, we'll also ask him whether Sir Keir Starmer really did have to be restrained after PMQs yesterday. Apparently, there was a bit of a dust-up uh, after uh, Prime Minister's questions outside of the chamber uh, where there was a lot of shouting, a lot of finger-pointing and possibly even uh, a few threats being handed out. Coming up later on, Baroness Kate Hurry is here with her solution to the problems in Northern Ireland, which, to me, appears to have been caused by a combination of EU intransigence and threats from paramilitary groups. The question is, can Boris fix it? Did he sign the deal just to get the deal done uh, so that he could then renege on the deal a little bit later on down the road? Also, Helen Dale is here too, looking ahead to the French elections where a new poll puts Marine Le Pen ahead of President Emmanuel Macron for the first time. Plus, you'll have a look at the shambles inside the Scottish National Party or, of course, the Scottish Nationalist Party, if you prefer. 0344 499 1000. As if that wasn't enough, we are looking at government plans to impose a carbon tax, not on fuel, not on flying, not on bonfires, no, on meat and cheese. For heaven's sake, where is it going to end? As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And how are you doing? Do give us a call and we can tell everybody else what's going on out there in the big wide world because we are, of course, the home of common sense. 0344 499 1000. And did you clap uh, for Captain Tom last night? I didn't see very many people out and about doing it. I didn't see or hear anyone in my neighbourhood doing it. Uh, and most of the people that I've spoken to since last night say they didn't do it either. Has the government managed to kill off all sort of uh, goodwill in this country? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. John, welcome back. How are you? Good morning, Mike. I'm very well. Now, a very stimulating day down in Westminster yesterday. Do tell us more about this punch-up between um, uh, Boris Johnson and the leader of the opposition, because it's, I find it intriguing. I love the way that you've all written about it this morning, is the, the man who's, fine, who's who's got such self-control has finally lost the plot. <laughs> well... Yeah, no, it was interesting. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, there were no journalists there. I mean, this uh, conversation took place behind the speaker's chair um, where um, lobby journalists are not exactly encouraged to hang around. Right. Um, uh, so we only rely on uh, sort of secondhand information. And there have been different different accounts. But I think that I think the gist is, uh, as you said, that Keir Starmer was extremely cross. He felt... Uh, he felt Boris Johnson had uh, had said something about him that was untrue, mm. uh, and he had words with him about it. And uh, uh, later had to rather shamefacedly admit that he he Keir Starmer had got it wrong. Right. So Keir Starmer got it wrong rather than Boris Johnson getting it wrong. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. Boris Johnson said, uh, which is quite true, that Keir Starmer had wanted 
uh, Britain to stay in the European Medicines Agency. Yeah. Yes, Dharma. Uh, it wasn't wasn't properly paying attention because because the prime minister said it twice right. at least twice um, in prime minister's questions. But um, I think this is where Keir Starmer's inexperience showed mm. uh, because you know and although he's been shadow Brexit secretary, so he's been at the dispatch box in the House of Commons for some time. He is actually you know quite an inexperienced MP. Yeah. Um, and he obviously was not paying proper attention to what the prime minister was saying, what his actual words were. So he just assumed that Boris Johnson was accusing him of something that uh, he hadn't said. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he's often accused by the prime minister of not listening to the answers that he's giving him. Not that he very yeah. often does actually answer any of the questions that he's asked. But, you know, whenever <laughs> he does, um, he then gets Starmer throwing him another question, which he's kind of already addressed, almost as though he's not listening to the answers. He's simply reading a script. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what was extraordinary about yesterday was the role reversal. Mm. Uh, Keir Starmer is supposed to be the forensic lawyer on top of the detail. Uh, and yet he got completely thrown by the prime minister who had the detail at his fingertips. He had the actual quotations from what Keir Starmer had said in the past uh, written down in front of him. Um, and uh, Keir Starmer got it wrong. Um, you know, it was it was incredibly embarrassing because actually, you know, in, in his other questions, Keir Starmer was causing the Prime Minister some difficulties, but it was all overshadowed by this uh, by this row uh, and the necessary apology. I mean, at least he did do the apology properly. He, you know, he said he got it wrong uh, and he came clean. Yes. What's interesting as well, I was talking to Charlotte Ivers yesterday when we were watching it, that, that, that he didn't go in on the whole uh, EU situation or we didn't really mention what happened on Friday night uh, with the European Union and Northern Ireland. Uh, she maintains that that's because the government wants to try and sort of sit on the moral high ground there and not particularly abuse or disabuse the, uh, the European Union at any point for what they've done. But given what's happening in Northern Ireland now, you might think that they would want to, wouldn't you? Well, I, I you know Keir Starmer wants to stay away from the question of Europe, which is why, which is why this row over whether he wanted to be part of the European uh, Medicines Agency is so damaging because it just draws attention to the one great thing that the that the government has achieved, which is the vaccination program, mm. uh, and the fact that Europe's vaccination program has gone extremely badly. So if, if you know Labour's associated with wanting to stay in Europe and be part of that. Uh, vaccination program that's the point that which Keir Starmer got crossed because mm. he says that's not his policy he does not want to be part of the EU vaccination program uh but you know very if, wise if he, <laughs> well yeah but if if uh, you know imagine you know Labour had won the I don't know won the election um you know then we'd have had a referendum on on whether to stay in the stay in the EU and he would have been arguing that we should mm. um I'd like I'd like to say John that I remember what Labour's policy was on the EU going into the last election but I can't actually remember because they changed it so often well and it wasn't clear no. <laughs> it was to, it was to hold a referendum on a second referendum on whether we actually wanted uh, a, a deal which hadn't actually been negotiated mm. at that point right and uh Jeremy Corbyn's view was that he wasn't going to say whether he was going to be for or against it. Mm. It was it was extraordinary. But I mean, Keir Starmer's view was very clear. He he thought we should remain in the EU. And therefore, Boris Johnson is trying to uh, taint him with the brush of the EU's failure on the vaccination programme. And that's what got Keir Starmer so cross. Mm. Yes, it's fascinating to watch, actually, because, as I say, uh, he's normally such a kind of controlled individual and he looks like somebody that likes to be in control. And so, therefore, yeah. as, as, as you will have done, I'm sure, over the many years that you and I have worked in newspapers, when you see people having rows who lose the plot altogether, it's actually quite funny. 
Well, it depends, depends on what tickles your funny bone. I well, that, I mean, I, I, I love to see somebody who's normally in control, out of control. I suppose that's what I mean. Yeah, no. Well, it was it was a very interesting moment and, and rather revealing of uh, of Keir Starmer's uh, possible weaknesses. And mm. uh, you know, he's under he's under a lot of pressure at the moment because you know Labour. You know, he's done the he's done some very very important things. Uh, you know, mostly uh, not being Jeremy Corbyn, and that has restored a lot of Labour's reputation with the general public. Yes. But it, that it, we, we, we've done that. And, and, and so we're, we need to move on to the next phase. And Labour's rise in the opinion polls has stalled. Uh, and it's not quite clear what he's going to do next. No. And uh, I don't think Thunder... he helped himself with that ridiculous nonsense in The Guardian yesterday about, you know, reclaiming uh, the flag and becoming more patriotic and wearing better suits. I mean, I really don't think that's the answer. <laughs> well, yes, and Labour running a mile from that, saying that was just advice to the Labour Party from an outside agency. Of course. But, I mean, you know, anyone who watched, I mean, there, there was a Labour video put out um, a, a few days ago, which had, you know, soaring pictures of, of White Cliffs of Dover and, and, and what a beautiful green and pleasant land the UK is and Keir Starmer in front of a Union Jack. Um, uh, so, you know, that is very much the message and i think that goes down well with the with uh, with, with the general voter but it's it's causing some unhappiness in the labor party because they think it's all a bit uh, sort of rather opportunistically identifying uh, labor with some of the sort of red wall uh, pro-tory themes yeah. i mean imagine being proud of the union jack i mean that's a disgrace isn't it if you're a labor party member <laughs> well a certain sort of labor party member and the sort of the sort of uh, party member who uh, who supported Jeremy Corbyn and yes. Jeremy Corbyn had some difficulty with those symbols mm. of uh, of British national pride right. uh, you know not being not not singing the national anthem um it took him some time to get into a proper suit and uh, suit and tie and all the rest of it right. uh, and as far as i can remember Jeremy Corbyn wasn't seen in front of a Union Jack very often. Not very often, no. I mean, just about probably at the Cenotaph when he was there uh, for Remembrance Sunday. But, I mean, he doesn't mind waving the Palestinian flag around. It's not it's not flags he's against. It's just the British one. <laughs> well, exactly. And that is uh, that is precisely the sort of thing that, that Keir Starmer is trying to get away from. Uh, but it is creating some tension with the La within the Labour Party. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about Northern Ireland. We're going to be talking to Kate Hoey later on, so we'll get her view from, from that side of the, of the pond. I'm sure you won't agree with me when I say this whole situation seems to me to have been caused by the European Union trying to maintain the single market uh, in a place where it wasn't possible to do it. Um, and then also uh, by threats coming from, you know, sectarian paramilitary groups to disrupt everything, which doesn't seem to me necessarily uh, to be a reason to blame the government. Uh, no, I mean, I don't I don't wholly disagree with you there, Mike, actually. I mean, the, the whole point is of the of the uh, withdrawal agreement and the Irish protocol, uh, which was followed by the, the, the trade agreement, was to create a special status for Northern Ireland, which would in effect, keep it as part of the European uh, single market for many, many purposes. Now, that is obviously going to cause some strains and stresses at the uh, at the borders. And we, you know, we do have uh, increased checks on uh, on stuff that's moving uh, from uh, from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Uh, and you know, Boris Johnson's been a little bit evasive about that, but it has essentially admitted it. Um, but it's cause you know it is going to cause some problems, and it is it is causing problems. Uh, there is a question mark over whether 
the European Union is is trying to make it worse um, or or not. I mean, Michael Gove has has suggested that some of the uh, some of the obstructions to uh, to to goods going between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK are uh, are imposed by uh, political. Uh, motives rather than uh, than technical motives. Yes, and certainly you some know, of the some of the problems. I mean, I heard uh, somebody from the DUP on this morning uh, with Julia talking about the difficulty of getting things now delivered into Northern Ireland from people like Amazon and others in in the mainland UK, um, which again is probably something imposed by those commercial companies rather than the government, right? Uh, yes, and the problem with what Michael Gove is suggesting, if he's suggesting that the EU is trying to cause trouble there. Uh, is that all these checks are actually supervised and done by uh, officials of the UK government. Mm. So it's a, it seems a bit much to accuse the EU of deliberately trying to, uh, trying to cause problems on, uh, on the, the border down the Irish Sea, mm. which Boris Johnson uh, and Michael Gove themselves negotiated. Right. I mean, there is a view, is there not, that Boris could just do away with all of this uh, if he had the political will to do so? Well, I don't think there is because, I mean, there's a fundamental problem uh, that, you know, Northern Ireland is in the UK, which uh, is a, a separate customs area from the from the EU. There has to be a border somewhere. Um, there's no way you can just you can just ignore it. Um, and, you know, the fundamental problem is that the DUP um, foolishly uh, brought down Theresa May's perfectly sensible compromise, which would have kept the whole of the UK uh, in the EU customs uh, area, uh, and that would have uh, that would have solved most of the problems of Northern Ireland status. The DUP, uh, I, several people in the DUP privately accept that they made a mistake there. They ended up with uh, Boris Johnson's deal, which which drew the border down the Irish Sea, and that's either that's but I something. Think, but also, I mean, Theresa May's deal was not really acceptable to a lot of Brexiteer Tories, or indeed people who voted for Brexit, because it wasn't a proper Brexit. Uh, well, probably, yeah, maybe. I mean, if, if people will argue about that. It's, it's pointless now. But I mean, it, all I'm saying is that the DUP made a mistake. I mean. If if they'd supported it, it probably wouldn't have succeeded anyway. But they right. should have supported it. It would have been better for Northern. Yes, Ireland. I mean, I think they're all feeling rather, um, shall we say, suffering from um, you know all sorts of uh, you know regrets about what they did uh, and what they didn't do uh, all all along. But I mean, as far as what happens next, if something is if somebody does trigger Article Sixteen, what actually happens? No idea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I've been sitting around for the last two days trying to work out what happens next. I'm going to ask Kate Hoey and she might be able to answer it. But it's very... I mean, uh, well, one I... of the things about Northern Ireland that I always get told by economists is that it only contributes something like 5% uh, to the British economy anyway. So as much as you can't obviously just leave them to sort of hang in the wind, um, you know, it's not that important to anybody outside of Northern Ireland. Well, yeah, but I mean, Northern Ireland is still a very important part of the uh, of the UK, and uh, you know, the, the 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 future of peace and prosperity and on the island of Ireland is you know should should matter to everyone. It should. I mean, uh, I, I was being flippant. Article Article sixteen is is a emergency provision for suspending some of the requirements of the Irish Protocol of the Withdrawal Agreement. Uh, it was invoked in error by the EU in order to try and block um, vaccine uh, vaccines going from Ireland uh, to the, to Northern Ireland or vice versa. I can't quite remember which. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, Boris Johnson is engaged in a bit of uh, political grandstanding in threatening to uh, invoke it himself. But, 
you know, as these 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 things will have to be negotiated and uh, and and sorted out. I mean, I, I think issuing threats is uh, is unhelpful on both yeah. sides. Yeah, well, absolutely right. And certainly, what the EU did on Friday night was not at all uh, sensible. Let's talk a little bit about um, Captain Tom because I'm going to ask you a personal question, John. Did you clap for him last night? Uh, I'm afraid I didn't. No, I I completely forgot. Uh, <laughs> I was doing, I was doing something else. Right. Uh, and uh, I don't. You're right. I don't think. It, I don't think many people. I don't think uh, many around... people did, because I'll tell you what I think about this, right? I mean, you know, as much as I mean, I, I eulogised Captain Tom on the on the on the day that he passed away because I thought he was a wonderful character, great sort of uh, uh, old-fashioned British individual, fought in the war, stood up for all sorts of things, raised an incredible amount of money for the NHS. But I think people are generally just fatigued by all this. You know, you must clap for these people, like. The second time they tried to get us to clap for the NHS, nobody bothered. So they've all quietly forgotten yeah. about that. And the fact that they had us doing it um, week in, week out throughout the course yeah. of the summer, I think people have just become tired of it all. Well, I agree. I mean, I think trying to make it a sort of regular event was was a mistake. I think people are very happy to show their appreciation and support and respect for uh, all the sort of key workers who've kept the country going. Mm. Uh, and, you know, people admire uh, Captain Tom hugely and uh you know are prepared to show their respect for him too but i i thought i thought a minute's silence in the house of commons was possibly uh, uh you know over over the top i mean i think I, I i think a minute's silence is something you do to show respect to a lot of people who died yes uh, a single individual well exactly but, I, mean, I mean it's a bit like they started doing that at football grounds where there was practically every week there was somebody they were having a minute silence for and it might have been the person that sold the hot dogs or it might have been a former manager but i mean it got to the point where it seemed like it wasn't an unusual occurrence it was actually a regular occurrence well exactly i think if you do these things too often then they lose their they, they lose their significance mm. but i mean you know captain tom was a you know he really did symbolize something um, and he was he was a marvellous person. And I thought the way that uh, Chris Whitty, Professor Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, uh, used the memory of Captain Tom yesterday yes. to, uh, to dismiss I that, that young very, very clever, actually, that. who had uh, harangued him in the street, I thought was, was was brilliant. I think Chris Whitty ought to be prime minister. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, he certainly went up in my estimation as somebody can can use whimsy at one of those, which is sadly lacking in some of those press conferences. And and, uh, and, he, and he actually, I think, made himself look a lot more human um, than most people thought he actually was. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, state of affairs. I was glad to see Sir Keir Starmer out clapping because obviously he needed to use up all that excess energy uh, from the earlier punch up with Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Boris, uh, Boris Johnson was out clapping with... Uh, with Carrie Simon. But, that, but that's and, the other uh, thing that gets ridiculous, right? Because you then start, because journalists then start analysing all this nonsense, right? And I'm looking at that, watching it, thinking to myself, oops, she stopped clapping. And then she realised she stopped clapping too early. Then she started to start clapping again. And then he stopped, <laughs> and then he stopped clapping. And they both sort of looked at each other and went back inside. And you're going, this is ridiculous now. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is. But, I mean, you could see from the Prime Minister's point of view, if he hadn't, uh, if he hadn't taken part in it, then they... And then journalists would have been uh, all over. Oh, him, of course. Uh, but that's the nonsense of it, isn't it? That is the nonsense. The other thing I thought was amazing was all these hospital staff who were supposed to be worked off their feet, all standing outside the hospital clapping. And you're thinking, well, what's happening inside? Where, you know, what's going on? So I think, I think, I think we should call a halt to it and, and call for no more clapping events, please, for the foreseeable future. 
Well, I don't disagree, but I certainly think it's it's. Um, I mean, I don't mind doing it once or twice in the in the summer for special occasions. Yeah, I mean, I used to say to my kids at the weekends, "Why don't you clap me for doing my job as well?" Because you know, I've been doing it all week. You know, I expect a, I expect a standing ovation when I reach the house. You know. <laughs> and they're they're still they're still clapping now, are they? They're afraid to stop. And no, they're not afraid of me. Unfortunately, I've raised them too uh, well. They're too individualistic. I'm afraid they take no notes of me. Oh well, that's a, that's that's a shame. It's a bit like I, I was imagining a scene in the in in the Graham household, like the <laughs> like the Soviet Politburo, yes. where every, everybody's too frightened to stop clapping. No, the only the only part of the Graham household is happy to see me every uh, weekend is the dog. Everybody else couldn't care less when I turn up. <laughs> Anyway, John, listen, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Did you clap last night? I didn't hear anyone. I don't know anyone who clapped. I don't know anyone who heard anybody clapping. We saw some army um, uh, individuals clapping. The military were clapping. Obviously, the family were clapping. Obviously, big day for them. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer was spotted clapping. Boris Johnson, uh, some police officers, some firemen, fire brigade officers, whatever you're supposed to call them nowadays. But, I mean, general public, I think, are sick to death of all this clapping, aren't they? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. An awful lot of people tweeting me about the clapping situation and uh, Captain Tom, most people saying they didn't clap, basically because of the fact that it was cringeworthy. Uh, here's one from Peter who says, Mike, the whole clapping thing is very un-British. I think Captain Tom would have cringed at the idea. Quiet and reverential symbols of thanksgiving and respect are the British way. There's a lot to be said for the stiff upper lip. And uh, um, Rachel says, I hate the clapping. It's awful and pointless. If Tom taught us anything, it's get off your backside and make a real difference. I have feelings on raising money for the NHS. By the way, what is clapping doing? Uh, open your wallet or get out and volunteer. Uh, and I think another one here from GR saying, "Might anyone of Captain Tom's generation from Yorkshire would be terribly embarrassed at people clapping for them?" Well, this is the trouble. I mean, you see people doing it from hospitals, from army barracks, from police stations, from fire uh, brigade offices, and all of that. But when you see the politicians kind of slither around clapping, and you know they're doing it just because they think it looks good, because they should, I think that's really quite appalling. Let's talk now, though, to Dr. Benny Pizer, director of the Global Warming Policy Forum, because it may not surprise you to know that uh, I'm afraid the government have got a roadmap for something, but it's not how to get out of the uh, lockdown. It's how to start taxing us even more money uh, to raise cash for carbon, right? They want to try and get to zero carbon. And as a result, they want to try and stop you eating cheese and eating meat. Dr. Benny, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Pretty horrendous idea, this, isn't it? I mean, can't they, they can't get enough of taxing us for all sorts of fuel, uh, for flying, uh, for having electricity and for having fires, but now they want to tax us for eating. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, let's face it. Um, if you want to reduce CO2 emissions, then the general idea of a carbon tax at the global level where everyone basically, where we have a level playing field, uh, would make sense. Uh, the problem, of course, is that the government wants to increase carbon taxes on top of all the other countless regulations and subsidies. We are already paying an indirect tax of about 10 billion every year on our uh, energy bills to support the investors in, in renewables, all the big landowners and everyone who has a, a wind turbine in their, on their land. Right. They are getting about 10 billion already from us in indirect subsidies. Um, remember, there was another very popular 
idea a few years back called the so-called community tax. Oh, yes. The tax was going to the community. Uh, people might recall it as a poll tax. It brought down Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Um, there's a risk that this idea could backfire badly. The government can easily lose traditional voters, red wall voters, if they perceive that this money is being used um, not to, to, you know, tackle climate change, uh, but to fill, uh, uh, you know, the hole in in the well, exactly budget. right. Because there's no way that they're going to be able to tackle climate change with money, is there? Because the, what these people want to do is to change the way that we live effectively. Because I see from a report that was put out earlier on, uh, I think towards the end of last week, uh, the Global Warming Policy Forum published a document saying that the UK Climate Assembly, which said that it had delivered a mandate for a green revolution, actually had no such mandate at all. Because the trouble is, the difference between the poll tax, I think, Benny, and, and this carbon tax is that there wasn't anyone really in support of the poll tax, whereas there's an awful lot of green types in, 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 who are very happy to bring in more carbon tax. Well, the, the, the point is that if you ask people, ordinary people, you know, should we do something about climate change, then the vast majority will say, of course, we should do something about climate mm. change. If you then ask, how much are you prepared to pay every month to do it? in the absence of the rest of the world doing very much about yeah. it, you will find that that majority of you shrinks considerably. And that is the at the bottom, and that is the, the, the real problem we have, that no matter what Britain is doing, no matter what the government is doing, uh, the Chinese have just, in the last year, in the COVID year, um, opened more coal power stations Three, three times more coal power plants than the rest of the world together last year. So whatever we do is completely insignificant. Even what the US is doing is insignificant as long as the developing world is trying to catch up with us, to grow, to become less poor. And of course, that requires a lot of energy. Yes. And they're using the cheapest energy there is. And also here we are, um, having just left the European Union, supposedly promoting British farming. And this tax is going to hurt British farmers, isn't it? Of course. Oh, big time. So in Canada, where they have a carbon tax, the the average farmer has an additional tax bill of about $150,000. Uh, um, of course... The question, one of the big questions is whether the government actually wants to pay back the money, the revenue they raise. Mm. You know, th this is the idea that basically you, you make things more expensive, but the revenue you raise through the taxes, you basically hand back to consumers so that they're not worse off. Because otherwise, this government won't survive very long if they punish the most vulnerable people in the country mm. by making eating more expensive and heating more expensive. I mean, millions of households struggle to pay their heating bills as it is. Right. And are they really, really 
uh, wanting to be known as the government that punishes the most vulnerable people in the country? Mm. Well, it is this kind of middle class obsession, though, isn't it? Boris Johnson's got the bug, I'm afraid, not least because of his uh, uh, the mother of his latest child, uh, Carrie Simmons, who is obviously a green activist and doesn't really make much uh, of, a, of an effort to hide that. Um, but he's completely and utterly bought, sold and paid for by the green lobby, isn't he? Well, this is part of the problem. They live in the Westminster bubble. Yeah. They tax the poor and give the money to the wealthy electric car buyers. I mean, you know, you get um, three, four thousand pounds if you want to buy an electric car. Yeah. You will be handed that money directly by the government. Um, whereas if you drive a diesel or a petrol car, you'll get punished because your mm. car will be worthless soon yeah. because it's being basically phased out the same think about housing think about the the ridiculous idea of ripping out all gas heating within the next 10 15 years right never mind the cost of complete insulation and um, you'll be punished i mean think about the people who live in these high-rise cladded housing mm. i mean all the cladding was started the whole idea of insulating the high-rise was all about um, energy efficiency and reducing co2 emissions most of these flats are almost unsellable yes and nobody mentions and that do they? Happen, the same will happen to half of the uk housing stock old houses will essentially become worthless because you can't sell them yeah Absolutely you cannot sell your it's house anymore because you are no longer kind of, um, you know, your house hasn't got the kind of um, energy efficient uh, stamp. And so therefore no one wants to buy it. It's extraordinary, I mean, isn't it? Man. Dr. Benny Pizer, we've got to run because we're out of time. But thank you very much indeed. Director of the Global Warming Policy Forum. Another voice of common sense uh, for this show here, which is the home of common sense. Because let's face it, you know, there is no way this government is going to achieve zero carbon. We've got this ridiculous climate conference going on up in Glasgow later on this year, uh, which will, of course, have a massive carbon footprint because loads of people are flying in from all over the world to tell us to stop flying. What a collection of absolute planks. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Baroness Hoey coming up in the next hour. Right now we're going to talk to Bill Burrows, uh, our favourite uh, journalist and documentary addict, who's going to tell us about some stuff to watch uh, on TV. Bill, very good morning to you. Hi, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Very well indeed. Let's get right to it. I see you found another serial killer to watch. <laughs> there's lots of them out there, don't It does. I mean, there's an ever-ending sort of supply of them, really, isn't there? Well, don't watch this one if you're at home on your own. Uh, mm. This is this is Night Stalker, and it's it's quite a famous case because there's a film about it in 2016. ACDC even wrote a song about it. Right. And it's about the guy who terrorised L.A. in the summer of 85. Um, and they're talking about it being a really glamorous era for L.A. I don't particularly remember it being that, but I guess the Olympics had just been there in yeah. the mid-80s mid and power suits and all the rest of it. I suppose um, there was quite a lot of movies coming out around that time, around L.A., like, it's like Pretty Woman sort of time, wasn't it? Yeah, and you know when you see footage from that time, it's got that kind of glamorous sun haze to it. Do you know what I mean? Particularly in this summer, well, this guy is this guy had no particular mo. There was right. no type of person he attacked. Right. So he would attack young children. He would sexually assault children. He would murder old women, old men, women. It just totally random. Mm. He had no weapon he used. 
And as they say in the film, there's been no murderer like this in uh, in history, recorded history, because the police had nothing to go on. Now, what, how this, this this has become the state, Netflix is doing so well, it's now become cool to slag off everything they bring out. Mm. <clears throat> Of course, the Guardian's leading that, as you can imagine. Well, of course. I mean, they're no longer now sort of the upstart, are they? They're now mainstream, right? They're, too, they're, too, they're there to be hit, you know, they're there to be got at. So the, the Guardian's given it a quite a snidey review and says independent, but actually watch it yourself, make your own mind up. This is Well, this most is people listening to this show will think if the Guardian's slagging it off, that's a pretty good recommendation. I'll probably give it a watch. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Five stars for me already. <laughs> but the with this four parter is they don't actually show him and he's a scary looking individual apart from one really quick flashback until the final episode so if you don't know the story mm. when you finally find him being arrested it's incredible but this 85 also dovetails with the start of the 24 hour news agenda mm. so the LA the whole thing it's a bit like the Ripper we covered that just before Christmas yeah. the Ripper documentary which is the north of England was paralysed by fear throughout the 70s yes. well, this is like LA over one summer but this guy broke into people's houses. And as I said before, no one was immune from his, his victim list. Yeah. So he'd break into your house while you were asleep and murder you or right. do worse. Right. And anyone constantly to be hated being looked at. Um, oh, do you know, I think guy, I wrote about this. This is right in the middle of when I was working in America. And I'm pretty sure I wrote I about this guy. Richard you know. Ramirez, I mean, it was the story at the time. But the, the way they've done this as well is another reason why the Guardian the Independent might not like it so much is because they focus on the police. And there were police mistakes. Normally when I'm doing these documentaries, it's a series of police cock-ups or yeah. police corruption. But they focus on the two guys, Gil Carello and a guy called Frank Salerno. Frank Salerno had recently brought the Hillside Strangler to justice in the, right. in the, in the 70s. And it's about how this case affected their lives for the first three parts. And everyone said, oh, it's too much about the police. It's too well, it's very rare that you get that kind of focus on the police. And as they recount it, you can see how it affected them. And one of the policemen, one of the main cops on the thing, his wife and family moved out. They couldn't bear the pressure of it and living in LA at the same time. Right. And how? And the, the, the other thing that comes to mind, it's like old school forensic Sherlock Holmes time of detection. The, the thing that actually got in was his footprint. And you think, well, really, these days, DNA? No, it was his footprint. Mm. And his footprint was a very, very specific kind of trainer. And they found it at all these different sites. Right. And because the MO was different on every occasion, nobody believed it was the same guy until huh. he had this footprint. So how many people was he thought to have killed then in total? Well, it, it was it was eight murders, but they think it was much more. Right. 25 to 30 attacks. And this guy was such a lunatic, there'd mm. be multiple attacks on the same night. Yeah. You know, so if he didn't get what he wanted, he went to move on to the next. And he house wasn't of... robbing anyone, right? It was just he just had a sort of lust to kill them. There was a bit, occasionally a bit of thievery, but they, it was he claimed to be driven by Satan. And you know, for an atheist, that's hard to swallow. But I mean, he, that's what he kept saying. He got some of his victims to swear on Satan's life and all mm. this kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, but the guy who uh, directed it, who I want to come to on in a minute, Tiller Russell, he, he was just saying that. The guy was actually caught um, by the community that, that, he, that he was harassing. He was being chased by the police when they got down to it, and he legged it off a bus. Uh, and he finally ended up in um, the Hispanic community. He was Hispanic himself. And he, the police, the, the locals there, got hold of him, beat him up, and waited for the police to arrive. And he was glad to see the police, he said, when, mm. when he actually got there. Right. And uh, the director said it was like all this footage was like from the cinema gods, you know, because they were there when he was arrested in the back of the car. They were there on his trial, obviously, because it's America. Right. But it's, you know, really, really well documented. Oh, and, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's fantastic. Well, it sounds good. I've already got a couple of people on Twitter saying they've watched it already, uh, and it's brilliant. So uh, you're onto something there. What about Missing 411? Yeah, missing four on one. Now this this is slightly older documentary, but a lot of people in my WhatsApp thing are, are talking about it. And 
it's a very interesting documentary the way it's put together. It's about the people who go missing for no reason mm. at all in the national parks in America. And if you've ever been to a national park in America, A, obviously amazingly beautiful, but they mm. are vast. They're by giant, no yeah. We, no, but that, we can't imagine the, the concept of the vastness. And until you've actually been to one, it's hard to appreciate. Um, I think there's 400 and odd parks in America, but mm. this documentary focuses on children who just suddenly go missing. And their version of the Maddie McCann case is uh, a case called Dior Coons, mm. who went um, camping with his parents, um, grandfather, and his grandfather's friends, and went missing. And to this day, no one's no nothing's I mean, been found. I mean, there's so many people who, so many kids go missing in America on an annual basis. I think it's something like fifty thousand, and nobody knows ever knows what happens to them. No, this is true, but this one focuses on the national parks because the National Park Service were asked to be interviewed for this documentary, mm. and they will not keep a list of missing people in national parks. And the reason they said it because it's cost one point four million dollars to do. Wow. Well, that's in bird seed, isn't it? Really? Well, I'm surprised in a way because I mean, funnily enough, last time I was in California, we went to Joshua Tree. National Park, uh, where you have to go and buy a ticket. So you have to go somewhere and, 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 you know, give somebody a credit card. So you'd think it would be quite simple for them to, to keep a record yeah. of who was there. There's a professor of mathematics on the show. He says, we have all this data now. We have the way of collating this data. We need to do it. But what's really interesting about this is they show four or five cases where kids have gone missing and then their clothes have turned up or a year later, three years later, uh, they found occasionally they, nothing's found. Mm. But they do one in 1952. And this kid was age two. Keith Parkins, his name was. And he was in Oregon. Uh, he went missing. There were 200 people searching for him. And his body was found, um, I think it was eight, eight, 19 hours later, eight miles away. He was two years old. Wow. He was 12 miles over rough terrain. But this is, by this stage, you've been watching all the other kids going missing and you started to jump to conclusions. Mm. And the beautiful way, thing with this is they turn it around at the end and said he was found alive. So when his father actually finds him, you think, oh, the father's in on it because he found the body. Mm. And then he goes, he was found alive. So wow. You have to rejudge everything else that you've been through with the other cases. Huh. Because when I related it to the McCann case, there are 12 Facebook pages at least about this uh, Dior Coons case mm. with all kinds of allegations from Bigfoot to illegal adoption to the parents did it. You can imagine, can't you? So, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Really Interesting stuff. Really. Interesting stuff. Just before you go, um, you're preparing something for us next time. Yeah, Operation Odessa, not the uh, Nazi underground escape plan of the same name, but the fantastic story about a guy called Ludwig Fernberg, who was a Mr. Fix-It for the uh, mob, the cartel in Colombia. He was a Russian guy, and when they said they wanted to buy a submarine, he said, do you want to buy a submarine with missiles or without missiles? Mm. And how good is that going to be? That's and that was good. the producer, the Chiller Russell was the producer of this who directed Night Stalk. So oh, it sounds good. Sounds fantastic. Great stuff. Well, thank you very much indeed. Bill Burroughs, tweet out what it is that you've been talking about. We'll see if we can get that uh, doing the rounds. The Hunt for a Serial Killer, The Night Stalker. Fascinating story. I remember it uh, from the time. And also Missing 411 also sounds pretty intriguing about people that go missing in national parks, which are huge. He's absolutely right about that. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Time to say a very uh, good afternoon, as it, we now is, uh, to Baroness Hoey uh, of Lyle Hill and Rathlin. Baroness Hoey, a very good um, afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you feeling at the moment? Because uh, I'm told that people in Northern Ireland are not very happy uh, being treated like uh, sort of foreigners in their own land, as it were. Well, no, there is a great deal of uh, dissatisfaction annoyance and indeed anger uh, now that it looks like 
the EU just can change the rules when it suits them. Uh, and uh, but what I think I want to stress really at the beginning, this is not this should not be in any way presented as a kind of sectarian, you know, Catholic, Protestant, nationalist, unionist issue, because mm. actually everybody in Northern Ireland, whatever their background, whatever they voted, however they voted in Brexit, uh, is suffering now from the way that the protocol is working. So there is now a real anger about it because we've seen day to day little things happening that no one ever thought could happen. Mm. Uh, you know, the EU saying that they can't bring those a, a wonderful picture of people with muddy boots, all the garden centres, uh, people wanting to bring in seeds, these kinds of things. And the crucial issue was that right at the beginning, I mean, the UK government, particularly under Theresa May, gave in to this idea that because the EU as absolutely determined to protect its market, its single market, and there was a land border with uh, the Republic of Ireland, that apart from the Good Friday Agreement, which actually had nothing to do with, you know, that kind of security or trade border, they had to protect it. And mm. therefore, the, uh, the the nationalist community, the Irish government and the EU kind of connived to say, well, we can't possibly put any kind of trade arrangements at the frontier between our two separate countries. And the British government eventually, and Boris Johnson too, then agreed, oh, well, in that case, we leave Northern Ireland in the single market, so abandon us, even though people voted to leave on the, uh, you know, what was on the ballot paper. Mm. And we will put this trade border to protect the EU and all their nonsense about, you know, the different size of screws having to be the same forever um, from um, that kind of, you know, trade coming through into Northern Ireland and then going on into the Republic. And my view very clearly is it's this is the EU problem. They're mm. the ones who are not wanting uh, trade to come over. And remember, most of the trade, the, the vast majority of trade is Great Britain to Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland right. to Great Britain, Northern Ireland to the Republic of Ireland, and then on to main, main uh, land Europe isn't isn't nearly so great. So my 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 view is very simple. If the Irish government and the EU want to solve this, let the, the lorries go over the Northern Ireland border, the Northern Ireland Republic border, and then they decide who they're going to check. They decide right. who will go to stop. Don't divide the, the United Kingdom. So to me, it's a very simple issue of sovereignty. And I'm afraid the government abandoning Northern Ireland and now they're having to roll back very, very strongly. Yes. And I'm very glad you've explained it that way, um, Kate, because that's what I thought as I was, you know, as we were talking about this story yesterday, I had to confess to being slightly confused as to what the issues really were, because when Michael Gove made his statement last week, it wasn't very clear what he was no. suspending and it wasn't very clear why he was suspending it. And so I think a lot yeah. of us really were kind of confused as to what was going on. But I, I, I agree with you completely, because why on earth, if you were driving lorries uh, to the, the Republic of Ireland, would you take a ferry to Northern Ireland when you could take one to the Republic. I mean, it makes yeah. no sense to me. And if you're only doing business in the north, then you don't need to worry, surely. Yes, and, and of course, a lot of lorries coming over to Northern Ireland carry different things. And it's, you know, some some products are not affected by the EU single market rules, but a lot are. Mm. So this idea that Michael Gove has now asked for everything just to be kicked down the can, you know, kick the can right. down the road for another two years, that's not going to solve the issue. And the issue could be solved because it is actually, at, at, you know, at, the reason it's happened is because of political reasons. Whereas technically, if, if, it, if people were allowed to work this through, it could happen. And, you know, the protocol is something that no one in Northern Ireland was actually asked to agree to. Mm. And whatever the government says and whatever anyone else says, it is actually 
not doing what was on that ballot paper, which was the United Kingdom would leave, not little bits of it and right. leave, leave parts of it. Well, exactly right. And what about this business of the uh, the border points having threats and people, you know, graffitiing uh, messages and things like? What's that all about? Well, I mean, what has happened is because it's uh, at Larne and Belfast, because these trade arrangements mean that lorries have to be stopped and if they haven't got the right paperwork, they're being sent back or they're being held up for a long time and that Mm. has affected the trade coming into Northern Ireland. Um, Some people have got very angry about that. And yes, there have been, I mean, no no one can do anything other than condemn any kind of threats to people who are just doing their job. But I think what people forget and the media forgets is that the reason where we don't have any trade border at the at the Irish border, the frontier, as I call it, 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 it was precisely because of threats from uh, not just Sinn Féin IRA about what could possibly happen. We can't possibly, uh, you know, really um, put a, a dagger, they said, through the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. Uh, and those threats were always there. The Irish government, Varadka, went to the European Union with a picture of a bomb that had gone off years ago at the border and said, look, this is what will happen. Mm. So, you know, you can understand people, particularly from a community who feel that they've been ignored, that they're somehow that because they haven't threatened violence over the years, that they that there have been an awful lot of concessions to Republicans. And I, that's what it is now that's happening. But, you know, the irony is the last few days, the lorries have been coming over freely. Mm. And, you know, the world hasn't ended. So. Well, this is the thing. I mean, again, it seems to me very similar to what we saw um, at the beginning of, of January, where a couple of um, airlines got confused about papers that people needed to go backwards and forwards between the UK and some certain countries in, in Europe. I think Spain was one. And oh. British Airways staff refused to allow certain people onto a plane because they didn't really know what to do. And it was their mess up and they fixed it and it doesn't happen anymore. And this seems to me to be something similar. It's a kind of entirely constructed problem, which can be very clearly unconstructed um, or deconstructed even um, by the same people that made it happen. Absolutely. You know, with the will, the right political will, this this could be sorted. Mm. It can't go on because we can't have a situation, you know, where tourists and people coming over back and forward to Northern Ireland have to pay a big amount of money every time to bring their pet over. You know, that that is just nonsense. Right. And I, 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 I'm, I'm just pleased that finally the government have recognised that there is a border. They have been trying to say, Brandon Lewis has been trying to say for ages, that there is no border down the Irish Sea. Well, you know, that that has shown that to be completely untrue. And I think, to be fair to the Prime Minister, I think he has really uh, realised very recently, uh, because perhaps he wasn't, I don't know, maybe Michael Gove didn't brief him properly enough, but he has now realised that this is a serious issue. It's not going to go away. And if we can't get the East-West relationships right between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and between the island of Ireland and Great Britain, then why should Northern Ireland get involved in North-South dialogue mm. with the Irish government? So, you know, the whole thing is is very, very serious, needs to be sorted quickly and the Prime Minister has to take control of that sorting. And do you worry about Sinn Féin um, and their kind of willingness to, to push this all towards uh, the conversation about United Ireland? Because clearly that's their agenda, isn't it? Well, I mean, obviously, they will do anything that to try and separate out Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Mm. Um, and this, this is playing into their hands very nicely. Ironically, the European Union uh, on Friday, having arbitrarily said, well, actually, we're going to now... Uh, invoke this Article 16, which is a little bit in the protocol that allows 
uh, the, the whole thing to be stopped if it's actually injuring Northern Ireland in, mm. in, in different ways, environmental, economically and, and societal. And they used the word societal and, and said they were going to invoke it. Now, yes, they went back on it immediately. But I think that, you know, showed that it could be broken and that this whole question of the Good Friday Agreement was just a, a smokescreen mm. to allow the EU to punish uh, Northern, uh, to, to punish the United Kingdom. Remember, there were uh, commissioners who actually said the price of Brexit for Britain will be to lose Northern Ireland, and that is not acceptable. No, of course it's not acceptable, and that's certainly not what anybody who voted Brexit would want to see. Um, but it was an extraordinary uh, gaffe, wasn't it, by the EU? And it seems as though not only um, did um, Ursula von der Leyen not actually consult other members of the uh, European Union, doesn't seem like she consulted um, very many people in the European Commission either. And she just kind Which, of was flailing about like some, you know, spoiled teenager going, well, he can't do that, then I'm going to do this. I know. And she... she... Apparently, I, you know, I've just been sort of reading up a bit more about her. She wasn't a particularly uh, popular or successful defence minister no. in Germany. But I'm afraid, I'm afraid a lot of people who end up working for the EU and being EU commissioners on huge salaries are failed politicians in, in other countries. I mean, we were always surprised that, uh, um, you know, some of our uh, failed previous uh, politicians didn't go in like um, uh, Tony Blair, for example. Yes. I'm sure he'd love to have been a European commissioner. But anyway, they, 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 actually, Peter Madison was, so uh, I suppose that's, that, that's saying something. Yeah. But yes, she, she made a complete mess up. She didn't even consult with the Irish government. And I think that's what a lot of people in Ireland, particularly those in the Republic now who are arguing for the EU, uh, you know, for Ireland to leave the European Union, which would be very sensible given mm. the relationship with Great Britain. Um, well, that would uh, actually make more sense than we'll, making United yeah, Ireland, wouldn't it? Absolutely. We'll be thrown under a bus, they said, as soon as as soon as the EU feels it's necessary. And of course, that looks like what happened last Friday night. But um, let's just hope that, you know, we can we can we can get this solved, but won't be solved by little bits of tinkering, little bits of putting off for another month or mm. two. At the end of March, there's new restrictions to come in. We can't have those. It's it's just not sustainable. And I think the best thing would be to happen for the government to say, look, we made a mistake. This cannot go on. And we are now going to tell the EU we're going to invoke Article 16 and we're going to go back and work out a way where the Irish government and the EU can help show common sense and make this a sensible movement between mm. Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So does that then mean that we'd have to go back to Brussels and renegotiate whatever part of the deal Ireland is? Well, I think the the clause is is invoking Article 16 that then allows um, that particular bit of it to be looked at. I don't think it needs the whole the whole agreement, certainly not the trade deal, to be um, looked at. I mean, I don't think anyone wants more months and months of. I mean, that that is settled, but. This is a very separate part. The Northern Ireland was always treated separately. Mm. And I think that was the problem from day one. Our political leaders should be saying, you know, the United Kingdom is leaving as a whole. Um, and of course, because they didn't obviously rightly not want the whole of the United Kingdom to stay in the single market, because that would have left us subject to the European court yeah. and all of their restrictions. They were happy to abandon Northern Ireland to all of those awful things in order to get that trade deal. And, and that's... You know, I think that is going to show up in history as a bit of, bit of shocking uh, behaviour yes. really by 
I suppose the other way to look at it would be that Boris Johnson, who was quoted, was he not, as saying to people in, in Northern Ireland, well, don't worry, if you get bound up by red tape, just chuck it all in the bin uh, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and we'll move on. But, I mean, he does have that kind of slightly cavalier attitude about things, doesn't he, where he'll just yeah, say, yeah. Where he'll just I mean, say no, I'll tell you what, we'll figure it out later, but we need the main deal done. Let's not, you know, fall out over this one little part of it, which we can fix down the road. Yeah, I think I think that was the general feeling that, you know, this this is just a minor thing. It can be sorted, be sorted quickly. And of course, if we didn't have COVID, we'd probably all be going along with our bins dining street, throwing bits <laughs> of bureaucracy in it. But we can't do that at the moment. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, once uh, this lockdown ends and people are free to travel once more, um, it will be important that this is sorted out because what you don't want is some of the scenes we're seeing here at Heathrow where people were jumping over the barriers, apparently, yesterday. Yeah. Some of these flights coming in from Dubai because it was taking so long to get through that they were just fed up and they just ran yeah. for it, basically. That, 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 that's exactly right. And what about the movements the other way? Because obviously we're still uh, keeping an eye on the uh, immigration uh, border control front here in the UK with people still coming over in uh, dinghies on, uh, on the English Channel. Are, is there any evidence that people are moving through the Republic of Ireland into Northern Ireland and into Britain because of the fact uh, that there's no borders? Well, I don't I don't think that's... I mean, there's always been free movement. And, of course, that came long before the European Union. The European Union didn't bring free movement between yeah. Ireland and Great Britain. And, and there's always... I mean, there was always that risk. But I think it's more the kind of... Um, um, organized crime that is a problem with the border and perhaps you know smuggling of, of um, you know some people who are working in it in, in, in very bad conditions but mm. I don't think at this moment in time and certainly with the COVID restrictions and the restrictions in flying that that's going to be an issue at the moment. Yeah absolutely. Baroness Hoey as ever great to talk to you uh, thank you very much indeed for all of that information. Uh, glad to see that Kate Hoey uh, is on the same page as I am on this. I think it is entirely a constructed row this with the EU entirely of the EU's doing because it's very easy it seems as, as Kate says uh, to work this problem out all of these kind of naysayers Ramonas rejoiners whatever you want to call them saying see I told you it wouldn't work told you told you what's wrong with it there's nothing wrong it just needs to be fixed and so the government can do so uh, as soon as they like I would suggest they do it sooner rather than later the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. What I was going to say to you was, yeah, when I was younger uh, and my kids were younger and you'd have to call sometimes um, that helpline to see what you should do about your kid not being very well. Uh, and sometimes what would happen is you would have a long conversation and they would end up saying, well, if you're of course unhappy, you should probably take them to the A&E. And you go, well, that's what I'm ringing you for. Not ringing you to tell me to take them to the A&E. I could have done that anyway. I hope the whole point of this was to avoid that. But anyway, uh, that's another story. I'm sure we'll talk some more about that coming up. Right now, uh, it is that time of the day, slightly later than advertised, for homeschooling. Because, of course, many of you are still uh, looking after your kids at home. They're not at school. The schools are still closed. Unless you're key workers or they're vulnerable, uh, they will be sitting at home, probably getting bored stiff, trying to figure out what they can learn. Yesterday, we taught you how to make a penguin with a toilet roll, which I thought was quite remarkable, considering that I was able to do it. Today, uh, we're sticking with that sort of theme, but we're going to talk uh, to Stuart Winter, Sunday Express's nature columnist, of course, an enthusiast for the bird-watching fraternity. We're going to talk about cranes. Apparently, it's a record-breaking breeding year. Stuart, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. How nice to see you. Um, do you know, I was telling this story just the other day about a crane visiting my garden and I looked out the window one day and we had this little fish pond that had a few fish in it and suddenly there was this crane standing over it and very soon, shortly thereafter, there weren't any more fish in it and the crane had disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the um, 
misapprehensions about cranes. Um, in Ireland, they actually call herons cranes. And it's really interesting to see how cranes have been part of the English um, and British landscape. Mm. Um, up till 400 years ago, they were birds of wild areas. And sadly, they were exterminated, for want of a better word. I mean, they were served up in the Elizabethan feasts. Were they? And as you can see, I mean, they're wonderful birds. And I've managed to get a couple of cranes flying behind me for um, listeners this, this morning. Saw that. But um, what actually happened was um, they were persecuted one way and they also lost their lands, their um, habitat because mm. cranes are birds of wild places and they were breeding in areas like the fens mm. and these were drained to make way for farming. And so slowly the cranes vanished. And what we've seen in the last 30 years is there was a small population that turned up in East Anglia from the wild. Maybe most probably birds migrating from scandinavia down to spain and like the look of the place and stayed and then there's been an amazing effort by conservation organizations to actually reintroduce them and what we've seen is the the rspb and the wetlands and wildfowl trust and another organization called the pentacle trust been working together and it's a great story they actually introduced them um, some cranes they brought baby cranes over and reared them in um down in somerset and they, they used, they called it crane school because they didn't want the actual cranes when they were released in the wild to become um, habituated to humans. Mm. So they were, people would dress up in special suits and slowly show them how to be cranes. And these birds have sort of gone into the wild. And the result is this week is that the RSPB have revealed that there's been 64 pairs of cranes of bred. They've raised 23 young. And now there's 200 birds in the country. And there's a very good chance. I doubt whether any of you will end up sort of coming into fish ponds. Mm. But um, if you go out to the wilds of East Anglia or go down to the Somerset levels, you've got a chance of seeing them. And they are absolutely huge birds. Um, they are, they, aren't they? And they, I mean, are they considered to be sort of wading birds? Is that what you would call them? Yeah, I mean, they've got very long legs. Um, they, they like sort of wetland habitats. Um, but unlike, they're, they're not related to herons. They're, they're sort of further along the evolutionary tree, but they do look very much like herons. Mm, right. And um, I mean, but they, they dwarf, they'll, they'll dwarf a heron. They, they'll come up to you almost to your shoulder. And then once they stretch their wings, they, um, their wingspan is larger than a golden eagle's. Mm. It just shows you how big they are. Probably they are giant, aren't they? And so are, is Britain very much part of their migratory sort of uh, traveling situation? So well, they won't be here all year round. No, I mean, what, what tends to happen is the birds migrate the, migrating um, from Scandinavia and they go down to Spain and they'll feed in the, um, the cork forest where we get corks from, um, for our wine bottles. They, they feed on the acorns from mm. the, from the um, cork oaks. But um, what seems to have happened, that there's been a slow drift at, at times and they, those birds ended up sort of turning up in East Anglia. So that was one wild population. And then we've got the reintroduction programme and these birds are becoming very static. And um, it's interesting that a close relative of the crane is the sand eel crane in North America. Mm. And they're migrant birds. They come down from sort of Alaska down to the um, down to Texas. But in the, the uh, in Florida, the, the birds there have become sedentary. And you quite you, know, you can go to Disneyland literally and see a few of them walking around the park and things right. like that. Yeah. So they they've got two um, survival strategies. Some migrate, and there's a problems with you know, long flights. 
but um, staying still, if they lose the habitat, then they could actually, then that population can sort of diminish. Right. And they, I mean, they, they always remind me a bit of flamingos, but f flamingos obviously aren't the same colour, they're pink. And are they the same kind of family? No, again, flamingos are most probably slightly related more to, to herons. It's, um, it's a thing called convergent evolution. I think that birds can actually evolve to look like um, other birds mm. and have the similar habitats, uh, similar features just because they, they exploit certain habitats. Yeah, but, I, I, um, guess, I guess, but I mean, funnily enough, I was having this conversation with one of my kids the other day, we were out walking the dog, um, and I said, I don't think there's any species in the world like dogs where there can all be so many different shapes and sizes and, and colours and, and with different sort of, you know, markings and all of that. You know, because I was saying, you know, imagine if lions were all different sizes and different shapes and different colours. But actually birds are probably the other species that is so different in terms of its own you know, um, it, its own one species. Well, exactly. I mean, birds have evolved from a common source and there's most probably 10,000 species. And you know, for, for, for listeners, it's really well worth sort of spinning out is birds, you can actually see evolution in, in progress. Mm. So basically, um, birds breed every year, so they have new young and those young have to adapt and they bring in certain features. And I mean, DNA is such an incredible substance that you know it can it can change um, time after time, and so you can actually see some birds. There's a, there's a bird in, in Britain called the yellow wagtail, and you just have to go across to France, and it's a different colour bird, mm. very closely related but different. So it just shows that you know what a wonderful thing evolution is. Yes, fascinating stuff. Well, Stuart, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Stuart Winter, Sunday Express Nature columnist, uh, keeping an eye on the bird population for us. And good news for the crane world, because there's more of them now uh, than ever before, luckily. Um, so keep your eyes out for them if you've got a fish pond, because uh, they might come and nick the fish. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.